listed on the board. And I hope as we go through here that everybody will make note of and check them out. And there's several times through here, in fact, there's one today where I'll give you a number of passages that I'd like you to take the time and to look up to bear on the subject itself. We've already examined and brief review the external evidences uh, for Revelation having been written before 70 AD. And we've noted that in the process of that examination that the majority of scholars have always placed it before 70 AD. And in recent years, a number of other scholars have placed it before 70 AD. And even an article we noted in Time Magazine, recognizing that despite the fact that theologians uh, place it after that and brought it down to the centuries that the majority of scholars put it before 70 AD and apply it to events dealing with the downfall of Judaism and the destruction of Jerusalem. I looked at internal evidences within the Bible itself and we noted over in the Gospels that Jesus preached to the Jews and it was the Jews that rejected Jesus. And that Jesus promised judgment on the Jewish nation. And he promised it a number of times. He promised it that it would come during their lifetime. And he also promised that in the process, Jerusalem would be destroyed. And also the temple would be left with not one stone standing up another. Uh, this was, in fact, you could ask any knowledgeable Jew today, anywhere in the world, what in the history of Israel was the most
the Jews were still a persecuting force against the church. That they were still a persecuting force against the church and were called Jews even though they were false Jews and were spoke, spoken of as really the synagogue of Satan itself. But they were a force against the church after 70 AD. Judaism would not be a force against the church. Now, one passage is not a pair that we gave you last week. We looked at the very middle of the book of Revelation, and we noted in chapter 11 that he speaks of the holy city uh, that is something in the future tense that was going to be trod underfoot of the Gentiles, and the number that's put there is 42 months. He speaks of that city as the city where our Lord was crucified, that figuratively is being called Sodom and Egypt. But really, it's the city where the Lord was crucified. And we identified the holy city, the city where the Lord was crucified, as Jerusalem. And the 11th chapter of Revelation pictures this that was going to happen to Jerusalem, the judgment, as something that was still in the future. The trodden underfoot of the Gentiles, the downfall of that city was still in the future, and yet it was going to come about in a very vivid way. That's just simply the fact of the book itself. Now, Let's look at verse 1, and I've given out a couple of books for you to look at tonight. Uh, I've given Larry Greeks, the Nestle Marshall Greek in a literary of the New Testament, and Larry turned over to Revelation, which is the regular New Testament, except it gives it in Greek with the literal word-by-word -word English under it, and then there's a standard translation over to the side. And then look at Revelation 1 and verse 1. And then Jack, I've given Vine's expository dictionary of New Testament words, and I'd like Jack to look at the word revelation. So if we look up the word revelation in order to verify what we've got. Now look at verse 1 of your text. Revelation 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, that which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take heart what is written in it, because the time is near to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And then in verse 11, he identifies these seven churches. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Okay, these are the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, Revelation, when we look it up, it finds the expository dictionary of New Testament words. The literal meaning of the word is simply an uncovering, a revealing of something, an uncovering. Now some passages that use this same word are in Luke 2.32, Romans 16.25, Ephesians 1.17, Ephesians 3.3, and 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 6. Now, let's turn back and just, I'll just pick one of those. In Ephesians 3 and verse 3, okay? You want to turn back with me, Ephesians 3 and verse 3, to show you how this 
demonstration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed, same word, by the Spirit to the Holy to God's holy apostles and prophets. So notice, revelation is God to Jesus through an angel and a John. Paul in Ephesians speaks of a revelation made from God to the apostles, and then just as John wrote revelation, Paul wrote. And he said that this revelation concerned information that was a mystery at times past, but now had been revealed to the apostles and then to others. And notice he said that when we read it, we can understand. All right, each of those other passages, if you'll check them out, you'll find this word revelation, the exact Greek word, and each time you'll see that it involves giving information to people about something they did not at first understand, and then after receiving that information, they can understand. So a revelation is an uncovered. Uh, Jack, if you got the vines uh, to turn there, the expository insurance, is that correct on that? It's simply an uncovering, and these particular verses are listed there as places where that Greek word is used. So it means an uncovered, right? A, a revealing. Now, just think with me a bit. What have you uncovered? What have you revealed? What have you made known? If you tell somebody something in words that he simply cannot understand. The very nature of the fact that you cannot understand it means that it is not a revealing. It is not an uncovering. It is not a making known of anything to you. You have to be able to understand it in order for it to be a revelation. So God reveals something to his son. His son, through the medium of an angel, reveals to John. Now, something else in verse 1. He said these things must soon take place. They must soon take place. Notice down the Bible, I've got the literal in the Greek, to occur with speed. Is that accurate, The literal in the Greek, where we translate must soon take place, the literal Greek is to occur with speed. And so, the Lord says, John, the way of an angel, I'm revealing something to you that is going to occur with speed. And then he goes on in 1 and 3 and says, Blessed are those who hear it. Who is he writing to? Seven churches of Asia at this time. Blessed are those that hear it and take it to heart because the time is near. Let me ask you a question. John's writing to a city, seven, pardon me, that joke a little bit there. To a specific seven churches. What does language mean? In fact, I thought Wallace made a good point on this in his book. What does language mean at all if you write to somebody and say something must speedily take place? The time is near, therefore you need to read this and take it to heart. If in reality you're talking about something. 
something that's going to take place centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries beyond the lifetime of those that you're writing to. It seems to me that language would make no sense at all. If somebody writes a letter to me, here I sit there in Ephesus or Philadelphia or Smyrna or Sardis, and I pick up this letter, and John is telling me that I need to read it and I need to take it to heart because he's telling me about something that is going to speedily take place and the time is near. But in reality, he's talking about something that's taking thousands of years down the Bible. Well, language then doesn't mean anything. It's also about that this word that is used, uh, uh, the time is near, or when he uses near at hand, it's the same word that we find in Matthew 3 and 2 when John the Baptist preached that the kingdom of God was at hand. And when John the Baptist was preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand, about how far off was it? About three years. John came on the scene and preached. In fact, whenever we talk with those that believe premillennialism and teach that the Lord is going to come back and set up his kingdom on the earth and that it's not established right now, one of the things that we do is point out that John preached that the kingdom was at hand. And Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom was at hand. And of course, then we come to Pentecost about three years later. Well, in the same day that the kingdom was at hand for John the Baptist and for Jesus, so this judgment that he's going to talk about is something that must soon take place, literally to a certain speed. Blessed are those who hear it and take it, take it to heart, because the time is near. By the way, it's interesting also in 1 Corinthians 14 and 6, that's where Paul says that when he's condemning those that would speak in the assembly in a tongue or a language that other people couldn't understand, and he says, what does it profit unless I speak by revelation? In other words, he's actually saying, when somebody stands before you, what good does it do for them to say something that you can't understand? And so remember, in that context, he said that if you're speaking in a language that others don't understand, unless there's an interpreter in the audience, you just don't speak. That the only words that ought to be spoken in the audience are those that are a revelation, those that reveal something to somebody present, some those that somebody can understand. And that word in 1 Corinthians 14, 6 is the same word that we find over here in Revelation 1 and verse 1. Now, so far, up to this point, does anybody have any questions or any comments you'd like to make? Okay.
persecution on the church. And it's believed by the scholars that at this point, in the being scattered and leaving Jerusalem, that John fled to this part of Asia Minor. And this is where he teaches. All right, then John now has been banished to the Isle of Patmos, and he writes back. Now, another indication in the text that John is writing to people that know him very well, and that he's very well acquainted with, he really doesn't bother to identify himself. He just simply says, I, John. And, that, and that's it. In other words, he doesn't say John the Apostle. He doesn't say anything about another John. That he just simply writes with the assumption that, remember, there were more than one John. And he just simply writes with the assumption that they would understand that this was the John that they knew. And so the, and all the way through the text, we find this, an individual writing to people that he seems to be fully cognizant of, fully aware of, and knows everything about them. And is writing to these individuals as somebody that is very concerned and is experiencing the same thing that they are experiencing, and he's been banished to the Isle of Patmos. Now, in one and one, he makes mention that this information has been signified to him. All right, now here's an area where the uh, those of you that are reading from the uh, New International Version, it does not do that word justice. The the King James, the American Standard, that put signified, that literally is accurate in the Greek. It was made known, the literal word was signified, and, and this is really important because he's telling you that it's been given him sign language. In other words, that, that all the way through here, this individual, this information, is something that has been signified and given to John. And as we go through Revelation, what we're going to find is that John will see visions. And he will simply write those visions down. And they'll be given the information that way. Now, another thing we can point out, remember in the early church at this time, they did not have the completed New Testament, as you and I have it today. But what did they have to help them understand and come to a knowledge of truth on, on any matter that they discussed with the letters? They didn't have the completed New Testament. What did they have? Okay, they had the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, they read Daniel, Ezekiel, and as Brother Sherwood pointed out, that, that the figures of speech and all that are used were not new to them. In fact, think with me on this. How could you reveal something to them if you're going to use figures of speech and idioms uh, and, and signs of that language that they're unaware of. In order for them to benefit from it, they would have to be aware of this kind of language. And we pointed out that this kind of apocalyptic language is used not only in the Bible, but it was used quite often at this time in history. And there's a lot of material outside the Bible written in this type of language. And going back into several centuries before the New Testament, it was used quite often. So the language itself is something that may be new to us. And you and I have to do some, some reading. But it wasn't new to them. They were very cognizant of the information in the Old Testament. And they were aware of this other type of language and the way it's used. Now, something else they had going for them in the, the early church then. They didn't have the completed New Testament like we do, but they had something else within their church. Okay, they had people with the miraculous gifts, just like Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And they had men with the gift of interpretation of tongues, gift 
And if you go back and look at Acts 19 very carefully again, remember that after Paul converted 12 people there, rebaptized, they had already been baptized once, uh, having been taught John's baptism, and Paul rebaptized them, and then what did he do? Laid hands on them and imparted these gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so the church in Ephesus, and this was true every place that Paul went, and it's true where the apostles went. Uh, we read, for example, in Acts 8, uh, how did Peter and John come down? And they find a group of people that Philip has converted. And they find that they don't have these gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, they need them. They don't have the complete New Testament. So immediately they begin to lay hands on people and pray, and they receive these gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so the church is established by the apostles. Every place we find the apostles going, they lay these hands on them, they lay their hands on individuals, and they receive these gifts. And so keep in mind that when you write to these churches, you also have people in them that would teach, did not have them completed the testament, such as you and I have. But they had these people that had these various miraculous gifts that aided them in conveying information and in their understanding. Okay, now, let's consider something else before we get further into the text itself. Trying to get this all up here. Well, I get all I can up. The next question that comes to our mind, we've said that Revelation is writing about something that was imminent, that was near at hand, which will speedily occur. We've said that scholarship places Revelation before 70 AD. And we've also observed that the event that was imminent, that was near at hand, was the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation. And on the other hand, we have John writing to the seven churches of Asia. Well, now the question becomes this. How will the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation have any big meaning to these seven churches in the province of Asia and to the Christian church throughout the Roman world? Why is it such a big thing to the Christian church outside of Jerusalem and throughout the Roman world? Now, we've got some passages up there, in fact, in our study this Friday night, we spent the entire study on, on the book of Acts and the Jewish persecution. Again, if you, if you don't get time to copy it all down, I've got the copy here, and that's the same with all the material that we'll use. But if you'll start with the book of Acts, and what I did is just simply in, in compiling this, I didn't go to any concordance or anything like that. I just simply sat down, and I wanted to get the feel for this. And so I sat down, and I read Acts in one setting. And every time there was persecution of the church, as a result of the Jews, I just simply underlined it red. And then I look back and, and I want to see what I have. First of all, it was interesting that just about all the persecution uh, of the Jews, of the Christians, was by the Jews. At the beginning of Acts 4, and remember there's no persecution until the church begins to multiply and really become a force. And then those, uh, such as the Jews, become very concerned about what a force is becoming. But right away, we began to have the persecution. We see the Jewish religious leaders putting the apostles in jail, telling them to shut up, not to preach in the name of Jesus. We find the apostles arguing back with them and says, you be the judge, do we obey God and other men? And as we proceed through here, we notice something else. On the one hand, the Jews are persecuting the Christians severely. They seem to throw them in jail at will. 
crucified Jesus? Remember the attitude of Pilate? And they wanted Pilate, the Jewish religious leaders wanted Pilate to take Jesus' life. Did Pilate want to do it? Sure, he said, it's, your, it's, it's not Roman law that he's broke. You've got a, uh, an argument with him about Jewish law. You go kill him if you want to. And so Pilate wanted to wash his hands of the entire thing. Why is it that Pilate executes Jesus? Okay. He wanted to please the Jews, didn't he? And as Sherwood pointed out, Pilate was concerned he was going to have a rebellion on his hand. Pilate executed Jesus, and Matthew even points out that Pilate observed that the religious leaders offered Jesus up because of envy. And he executed Jesus for one reason, and that's to please the Jewish religious leaders. All right, as we go through the book of Acts, we find that Rome stands by, they do not want to get involved. All right, there are times when a Roman official gets involved from the standpoint that he sees that persecuting a Christian or putting a Christian in jail pleases the Jews. And so, for example, over here, when we come to Herod in the 12th chapter, Herod has James, an apostle, killed. First recorded murder of one of the apostles. Well, then Herod noticed that it pleased the Jews. Well, what do you think O'Hara's going to do? He wants to kill Saul. And so right away, he goes out and gets his heart put in prison. And so Herod was interested in pleasing the Jews. You see, Herod had been placed as king in this position, when in reality, he didn't belong in that position. Herod knew he was, knew he was not in the lineage of David. He knew the Jews did not respect him in that position. Anything he could do to incur the favor of the Jews, Herod would kill his mother. If it would have incurred the favor of the Jews, by the way, one of the Herods did. It wouldn't so much sound. He would have done anything to get the favor of the Jews behind him. So he proceeded to the book of Acts, and we find constant persecution of Christianity by Judaism. Now, Come right over here to Acts 17. I'll choose that for example. Rather go through each other. It makes a good example of what happens all the way through here. Because we have a Gentile city that's involved. Acts, the 17th chapter, starting with verse 1. And again, what we're trying to ask is why was it such a big thing to all the church, even the Gentile church, for Jerusalem to fall and for Judaism to be wiped out. Look at that, I'm reading now in Acts 17, beginning with verse 1. When they had passed through the Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded. Notice, some of the Jews were persuaded. And joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of the God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, and they formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city. 
And they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason, this is the Jews now, dragged Jason, he's a convert, and some other brothers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them to his house. They're defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. What are the Jews trying to do here? Trying to turn Rome against the Christians. How are they trying to turn Rome? They know that Rome was concerned about this business of who was king. And so they're saying, hey, they're claiming that somebody else is king. That Jesus is king rather than Caesar. But did the Jews really respect Caesar and believe that he ought to be their king? They just simply are playing it with the Romans and wanting to turn the Romans against the Jews. They didn't like Caesar either. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were a more noble character than the Thessalonians. They received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of the prominent Greek women and many great men. Notice now, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they were there too agitating the grace. They went there agitating the crowds and steering them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast. Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought them to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Okay, what do we have there? They go into Thessalonica. Where's the first place they go? Jewish synagogue. As we read the book of Acts, they always went into the Jewish synagogue. These are the people that are prepared for the Messiah. That's where they went, where the religious people were. They had been prepared. They preached. A small percentage of the Jews believed. Now, when this small percentage of Jews, like Jason is one of them, the synagogue official, believe and converted to Christianity, what happens now with the majority of the Jews there who don't believe? They're so mad. They begin to persecute them. Want them thrown in jail. They're willing to pull them out and beat them. They're going to do that on a number of occasions. They'll take their life. All right, then they leave the synagogue. They preach to everybody. Gentiles are being converted. What do they do now? They go out among the crowd and they try to turn the crowd and the Gentiles against the church. All the way through the book of Acts, the Jews will be doing two things in persecution. Number one, they will persecute directly Christians, especially Jews that have been converted to Christianity. Number two, they will go among the Gentiles and try to steer them against the church. And they'll go before Roman officials and try to turn them against the church. And we'll go to note something else because this will come into play in Revelation. Remember in Revelation, there is a persecuting force against the church that uses the beast against the church. And then what's the beast do? The beast turns on that persecuting force. 
time. And we see Nero comes on the scene. The Jews are still persecuting, and now Rome picks it up. And so there's a persecution of Rome under Nero, the first real official persecution of the church outside of Judaism was by Nero. Please, the Jews very much. But then Nero goes by the wayside, and what does Rome do? Turns on Israel. Turns on the Jews. And it's a war that takes place that begins in 66 and will culminate in 70 in the destruction of Judaism. And so what I'm saying is that what we find in the book of Acts perfectly is in keeping with what we find in the letters. And remember, as we noted these various letters, uh, let's go on down a little further now. We've got the persecution in the book of Acts. <laughs> remember, Jesus in the Gospels had taught that he was going to pass judgment. He also, didn't Jesus teach the apostles that the Jews would persecute them? Didn't he say brother will turn against brother? There was going to be division in the same family. Didn't he say they will flog you in the synagogue and you will have to flee to another synagogue? He says that you'll be called before officials and you'll be put in jail and all because of my name. So Jesus had already warned them that they were going to be persecuted. But just as Jesus warned them that they were going to be persecuted, what did he also promise? Promise judgment. He promised that he was going to judge the persecutors and the kingdom of God would come with power when he passed judgment on the persecutors. Well, then we leave this promise to Jesus and come into the apostles. Now, they just simply carry out the preaching that Jesus had started. And Peter and James, for example, and Hebrews are being written to Christians who are being persecuted because they're Christians. And in each of those books, the writers are telling them to hang in there, be patient, because judgment for these people is near at hand. And judgment was going to be at the house of God. And it was an imminent type thing. And John refers to this as being the last hour in 1 John 2 and verse 18. Okay, now, let's go back to our text. Over in Revelation.
others that had been raised. And remember, Jesus raised the dead on several occasions. The apostles did. And there was, there was uh, events like that took place in the Old Testament by the prophets. But every last one of those people that were raised would only die again. But Jesus is the firstborn. He's the first one to come forth from the grave not to die anymore. And so he is one that has been begotten, coming forth from the dead. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, has made us to be a kingdom. Okay, this is an important verse. Slide. Made us to be a kingdom.